Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now on to the episode with your host, Harry Kemsley. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the James World Intelligence Podcast. I'm Harry Kemsley, and as usual, my co-conspirator on this podcast, Sean Corbett. Hello, Sean. Hi, Harry. Hi, Don. Good to see you, Sean. Thanks for joining as always. And I'm also very pleased to introduce our esteemed guest today, Mr. Don Rassler. Hello, Don. Hello. Thanks for joining. Uh, for those that don't know Don, Don Rassler is the Assistant Professor in the Department of Social Science and Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Combating Terrorism Center, CTC, at the US Military Academy, West Point. His research interests are focused on how terrorist groups innovate and use technology, counterterrorism performance and the evolution of counterterrorism practices and strategy, and understanding the changing dynamics of militancy in Asia. Don has conducted counterterrorism focused assessments for headquarters staffs and advised operational units in overseas environments. He is the co author of Fountainhead of Jihad, the Haqqani Nexus, 1973 to 2012, a book released by Oxford Press. Oxford University Press in 2013, and sits on the editorial board of the Combating Terrorism Center, CTC Sentinel. His work has been cited by New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, Foreign Policy, Los Angeles Times, and numerous other outlets, including today, James. Welcome, Don. Thank you for joining. Thank you. My pleasure. So for those of you that have heard recent podcasts, you'll know that Sean and I have been very keen to move from last year where we spoke uh, about a number of things to do with the power and potential of open source intelligence, OSINT, into this year now starting to relay that potential into the real world arena of modern day challenges that we face. Don, given your expertise and background, you'll be not surprised to learn that today, the, the aim today is to illuminate how the open source intelligence environment has started to really make a difference in the counterterrorism arena, which you know so much about. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time looking at some broad lessons about what open source intelligence is and what it means to counterterrorism work. And we have, of course, 30 plus years of recent experience of working in the counterterrorism environment. But of course, in the current context, we also have a re-emergence of what could be described potentially state-on-state -state sort of heavy metal warfighting again. But nonetheless, we still have enduring counter-terrorism challenges as well. So today, we're going to be looking at that topic of the utility of open source intelligence in the counter-terrorism arena. Now, to get us started, Don, what I was going to ask you to do first is just take us on a journey from your experience of what it is counter-terrorism has needed and how open source intelligence has supported that from your experience. And then Sean will dig together a bit further down into that over the next few minutes. So Don, could you get us started then on that opening question of open source intelligence, its utility in the counterterrorism arena? Sure, it's a great question to start with. And then with my time at the Combating Terrorism Center and, and, and the research that I've done, it's been interesting to see how the landscape of open source research has evolved during my time at CTC. And, you know, one metric of that is to look at that through the lens of unique sources of data. So one of the things we've always done at CTC is, is leverage primary sources, you know, material produced by terrorist groups, insurgents, militants, oftentimes it's scooped up during the course of operations. And so 
our center has a history of looking at that data and you know after it's been exploited for tactical and operational value and aggregating those collections of data and looking at them through a strategic perspective. And so it would be unique, you know, 20 years ago to pick up hard co copy files, you know, maybe one thumb drive with uh, megabytes of data in, in 2001. You know, you fast forward then to the mid 2000s and you know, if an operation were to recover a gigabyte, um, that would be you know a lot of be considered a lot of data. And now we fast forward to the current time, or or at least several years ago, and you're talking about terabytes of data being recovered. Sometimes you know during individual operations. And so this is material that's been scooped up, um, produced by militant groups. And then if you combine that data with all of the you know publicly available information that's available online and and the 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 flow and amount and richness of that data it, you know coming from a lot of different sources there's a lot of information and there's a lot of open source information and so this presents unique challenges for the counterterrorism community and as a sort of look back in the rear view on the past 30 years uh, you know i think one of the most interesting things is there have been a, a number of radical transformations in how the counterterrorism community has been able to process, analyze, and, and leverage data, uh, all sorts of data, to include open source data or material that's been collected on the battlefield. And those transformations have led to the development of, of counterterrorism or counterterrorism capabilities. And, and we today have exquisite capabilities in that regard tied to the exploitation and processing analysis of data. Uh, and so I think that when I sort of look back on a key lesson learned over the last 30 years, that's one key piece that, that stands out. You know, in our current moment, you know, when I think about lessons learned and the evolution of the threat and data, you know, one of the challenges that we have is that today, the threat environment is more complex ideologically, organizationally, geographically than it was on 9-11 or even before 9-11. And so, you know, as we look forward, uh, data and, and how we process and think about data is going to be key to our ability to to manage those challenges and the, the complicated environment that that we're in. You know, I, I would also say that when we look back on the last 30 years of, of counterterrorism, I think there's a lot of lessons learned. Data, uh, and particularly open source data, can be useful to help us monitor the evolution of the threat from a longitudinal perspective. So it provides that foundational sort of context about, all right, what is the arc of this trend line for a specific group or a specific region look like when we when we look back 20 years? You know, what if we isolate it for five years? It's helpful to sort of, for an analyst to say, all right, is, is the change that I'm seeing today, is that meaningful? Is that different? So if you're a new analyst, it might be new to you. It doesn't necessarily mean that that change in and of itself is new or meaningful without the broader context. And so that's right. where I also think open source data can be tremendously powerful. Open source data, I also think is quite useful for counterterrorism. And to think about, we can look at our own counterterrorism performance, evaluate it and improve, You know, particularly in an era of various national security priorities from counterterrorism to strategic competition. We need to think about and, and, and leverage all the data that we can to 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 manage uh, those priorities, and so from a counterterrorism perspective, we could look at questions like 
signature approaches, decapitation approaches to counterterrorism of, of either killing or removing a, a leader, you know, have those been effective? Under what conditions have those been effective? And we can leverage open source data combined with other data at times to, to help in this moment to refine, to think about where we've been, um, what, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and, and what the future holds. Um, lastly, I would just offer that when we think about lessons learned and, and the evolution of counterterrorism and terrorism data, I also think that it's it's also helpful to think about what other actors have learned over the last 30 years and in, in, in observing, you know, the, the counterterrorism fight, the counterterrorism wars. And I think about different actors like Russia and China, and, and I think about proxy warfare and proxy potential, you know, because I would imagine that if you're Russia and China, you might look on the last 30 years and say, there are ways in which terrorism has been useful to their strategic objectives as a strategic distraction for the United States, you know, the United Kingdom, you know, range of, of different partners to allow countries like Russia, like China, to make progress towards their objectives. And I would also say that, you know, those countries, Russia and China in particular, Iran, have also had 30 years of looking at how we fight wars, how we engage in operations. And while we have more data looking at you know, how a country like Russia might engage in, in war, or, you know, gray zone warfare or, or other types of warfare. When we have look at a country like China, we don't have as many data points. And so that's where I think about the future of data as well related to this issue, you know, it can help us to minimize the surprise space, whether we're talking about terrorist innovation or when we're talking about strategic competition in countries like China and their future performance on the battlefield or use of proxies in that area. No, that's fantastic. I think we've got at least three or four hours worth of material to go through this. So uh, get another coffee. Let's get ourselves comfortable. But before I get onto that, uh, Sean, you go. Yeah, thanks for that. I mean, there's a huge amount there. As you said, there's, there's a lot to cover. I'll try and uh, and distill my bits into three main points uh, that you brought up there, actually. And the first thing is, you know, talking about the lessons identify is is to, to butcher Sun Tzu somewhat, know your enemy. And I think particularly in the military in the past, we we really are guilty of putting adversaries, particularly the counter-terrorist adversary, and see it through the, our own eyes, like the, you know, the Western lens. But if you start looking at the academia and actually start looking at some of the, the doctrine that they follow, then you start to see, actually, what might seem logic to us is not logic to them. And so you've got to really understand the enemy before you start having an effect on them. I think, secondly, you mentioned it very well. If you look at the ISIL example, the amount of documentation that was there when Mosul was uh, was retaken, and that's not surprising, seeing as they tried to run themselves like a state. But that information is invaluable in understanding, you know, not just the philosophy, but also the processes and how they actually tried to run a state. So, you know, banking that and making sure we understand, which brings us on to the third point, which is the counter-terrorist piece. You know, again, I think in the military, we're slightly guilty of going, right, you know, let's look at it from a nodal analysis. Let's take out the top guy and the rest will fall. Well, of course, it's not like that. But having that understanding of cause and effect, and of course, open source can do that very well because you always get the resonance and the atmospherics about what's happened. So it, it will help us understand instead of, you know, quite crassly call it mowing the grass. OK, what are the causes? What are the underlying reasons? And therefore, how do we take on that particular challenge in a more strategic and effective and therefore efficient way. Yeah, I I think for me, Don, what you did was, without realising it probably, is you sort of cantered through a series of 
topics and key nuggets that have come out from my previous podcast. You talked about, for example, the volumes of data, particularly like the the uh, perspective you gave in that we collect data from our adversaries when we defeat them. And previously it was megabytes, now it's terabytes. That tells you a great deal about how important OSIN is to our uh, adversaries. That's, again, a really, really important point you made uh, about the volume, just the sheer volume demands that we get better at dealing with it. And technology has started to enable to us to unlock it and get into uh, the world of open source information because the volume is there, but also the complexity is there. As you said, you know, counterterrorism is a complex thing to do. But when your adversary is becoming increasingly diverse, diffuse and complex, then it becomes even more important. You know how to do it. And technology, again, is enabling us to unlock it. I think of the things you said, there, the bit that's really stuck out for me, which we will probably come back to, is the context. For example, you talked about being able to identify the arc of evolution and then seeing whether something is actually radical, novel, worthy of note, or whether actually this is just part of the norm. It's the pattern of um, pattern development of any organization. But it, equally, the second thing I really wanted just to pick up on a little bit further is this, uh, this idea that other states will learn about counterterrorism by allied states, by what they see, perceive, hear, think uh, of what they see, and that they will have done so for 30 years gives them probably pretty good understandings of how allied powers like to contend with terrorism in a counterterrorism environment. And as you say, there's almost certainly spillover there into war by other means, into the Grey War that we are all uh, currently thinking about, although that's not for today. So a really, really good intro. What I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to start to drive us down a little bit deeper into some of those topics. I'm going to ask you to talk to us a bit about um, some, some tangible examples of where in your counterterrorism expertise you've seen OSINT specifically step forward. As you do so, just to warn you, I'm going to be listening out for some of those things you said in your introduction, though, because I think some really good things there, particularly this identifying the pattern of normality, the arc of evolution. I think that's a really interesting uh, observation, which probably could only come from a broad base of intelligence like open source or publicly available. And then again, this insight piece that we might get from watching each other in this war space. So the question to get to it then for the second part of this now is, are there any tangible examples of where we've seen open source information, open source intelligence really drive a counterterrorism development? Don? I think there's a, a number of different examples that we can point to. On the context piece, you know, one area that I would point to is just looking at terrorism incident data, the utility of, of threat metrics and the potential of that data. And, and, and so one of the ways that I think about OSINT and its utility to, to counterterrorism is that sort of foundational pillar or a foundational backbone, if you will, of providing that context, um, which can be combined with other ints. You know, often those other ints, you know, forms of intelligence can be more granular or have more specific information. And so when combined with OSINT, I, I think that that's um, can be quite powerful. And I think it's over time, it's been useful and, and the intelligence and defense communities ha have recognized, you know, and increasingly recognized more so that the value of, of OSINT, you know, I would point to, you know, a project I recently worked on as an example of this, you know, and the value of sort of incident data. Our team at CTC was asked to look at counterterrorism in the Philippines. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. You know, one, because, you know, in 2017 with Marawi, uh, and the ISIS threat there, the takeover of a you know a fairly large city in the southern Philippines of Mindanao uh, that lasted for five months was a big deal. And the U.S. Department of Defense has provided counterterrorism assistance to the armed forces of the Philippines for nearly 
20 decades as a formal partnership. So in, in looking at the issue of counterterrorism in the Philippines, we leveraged baseline incident data about you know that broad arc again uh, of saying, hey, how do we look at what this threat environment looks like? It, you know, one of the things we often see, you know, the intelligence community is is very preoccupied with near-term threats, as they should be, and that's completely understandable. And that's, in many ways, is the world that they live in. And, you know, part of our value as an organization is that, you know, we sit on the Hudson, Hudson River uh, at West Point. We don't have, we have the luxury space and time to sort of pull back from, from issues and problems. And we're not worried about thinking about, oh, is there going to be an IED on this road that's going to, you know, blow up <laughs> for, for our team? And so we stitched together attack information, data about arrest to provide that brong arc to say, is the problem today in the Philippines from a, from a terrorism perspective worse than it was the previous decade? And what we found was that, yes, it is, even setting aside you know, issues like Marawi. And then we can leverage that data in, as a, in a foundational way and match it with metrics and data about counterterrorism you know, for example, targeted strikes uh, from Philippine precision strike aircraft, match that with counterterrorism data and, and see what it tells us about counterterrorism performance. Another example that I would, would use to talk about the value of OSEN in a practical way is to think about the nexus between terrorism and strategic competition. Um, and Donna, and if, it, if I may, and I hate to interrupt people, but I feel compelled to, so I apologize. Yes, do it. I'm curious, in terms of that incident data you collected, is that open source or did you get that from the DOD? Was that something that you were able to get by public available means or was that DOD sourced uh, incident data? Yeah, so you you go to Google and you you punch right. in global terrorism database and then that's going to give you, you know, terrorism incident data going back to 1970s and that's going to give you that backbone. And so that's there's other sources like that. There's uh, resources like ACLID, there's the iterate database, other incident data sources that are out there, which have each of which have their strengths and weaknesses, but you sort of pick which is most suitable for your approach and what your question you're trying to answer. So there's a variety of resources that are available. Okay. All right. Thank you. I apologize for interrupting. That was key for me. James does an awful lot of work in that space, and I'm just curious to know uh, how much of that was useful. Sean, you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, just looking at the, you know, the the sort of database of, of incidents, for me, the real value or one of the very big values of that is what I've known as uh, indicators and warnings. If you look about what's happening in the world right now, you know, clearly there are some big strategic state on state issues we need to look at. And of course, we're not necessarily therefore as focused in some of the ungoverned spaces. But just by monitoring what is being shared on social media and reported, whether that's Twitter or all sorts of, of things, you can start to see the numbers of incidents and where they are happening. Now, when we haven't got, when the military, you know, or governments don't have their eyes and ears on something as much because they're, they're looking at other things, that gives a great example of we should concentrate on this. I mean, you, you just, a couple of examples, you know, Libya, post-Gaddafi, it was almost certainly social media and locals that were starting to flag up the fact that they were seeing black flags over certain parts of certain other places like that, which then was gave us the indications warnings of where to look. If you look sort of more more recently, the resurgence of violent extremists, you know, Boko Haram, AQIM, etc. in, in northern um, Nigeria, 
incidents are going up. How much of that is banditry? How much of that is terrorism is a moot point. But we are seeing an increase in incidents in certain geographical areas where we might not have been looking. So I think that's a really important application uh, of this for the CT world. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Sean. Um, Don, I did cut you off. Just you better go into terrorism and strategic competition, I think. Let me uh, release again and get you back to uh, back to that point. Sounds good. So I, I think, you know, we talked about in the initial part of this conversation about what different categories of actors are learning, you know, what, what we can learn, leverage data to, to learn about, you know, terrorism or counterterrorism or what, you know, other actors, you know, Russia and China or Iran are, are learning or have learned from our activity. And so I think there's also a lot of opportunity when we think about terrorism and counterterrorism and how it sort of nests uh, or integrates with strategic competition, interstate competition between states is to look at how something like counterterrorism has evolved and is evolving as a form of influence. And so, you know, I, I think this is an interesting area because say if you are China, for example, or, or, or Russia, and you sort of look at allied activity over the last 30 years with respect to counterterrorism, you know, you can see how counterterrorism, many of our partners want counterterrorism. They're interested in counterterrorism. They have terrorism problems. And so counterterrorism can be used as a way for countries, obviously, to mitigate threats, which is a core thing for them to do. But counterterrorism can also be utilized and be a tool to help countries to expand their influence and achieve other strategic objectives related to things like access and placement. And so, you know, I, I think that as we sort of look forward, I think it's going to be interesting to see how counterterrorism nests as a sort of potential, and, and it appears increasing form uh, or arena of interstate competition and influence between states. Because I think that, you know, one of the lessons learned over the last 20 years is, is that counterterrorism can be a useful tool beyond threat mitigation in the geostrategic, you know, competition arena. And this is an issue that we're looking at at CTC. You could look at it through the lens of, of what Russia is doing in places like Africa, or or maybe what China is doing in Tajikistan or, or other countries. There's obviously threat mitigation concerns, but also other objectives in terms of influence. So, so that's right. where you could look at things like security cooperation data, the number of visits from high level or operational level Russian operatives or, or individuals or, you know, to different places, match that with terrorism data, match that with economic data, and just provide this sort of data layer, interconnected picture of how that arena is evolving. And, you know, and the challenge is that it's a multi-data driven arena. But I think what's interesting is that there's various pieces of data that we have that we're not going to have a perfect window from an OSINT perspective because a lot of that activity is clandestine and wants to be hidden uh, by governments. But there is, I think, enough data there to provide a, a picture, again, an imperfect picture of how that arena is evolving. And it's useful from a counterterrorism perspective because it helps in this arena of multiple priorities to help to identify where we're, we are competing with our strategic you know, competitors, Russia, China, yeah. Uh, yeah. where we're not, uh, where we're seeding battleground, for lack of a better term. And so there's strategic utility of sort of combining these different OSINT data streams, obviously matched with other forms of intelligence to sort of enrich that picture. So that would be an interesting sort of, not necessarily yeah. a current example, but. Yeah, yeah I think, I think it, that has resonance for me, Sean. You think about counterinsurgency from the earlier part of back end of last century, and you can't help but notice that state intervention for other means. 
the idea that you support insurgency to try and drive a political agenda. What you're saying, Don, is that that's still a philosophy that's in play here. It's just being done from slightly different means, but very, very much the same outcome. And as you say, add that to the economic impact of Belt and Road, for example, and other means of supporting countries economically, and indeed health, COVID, for example, COVID support. You know, these are all all nesting, to use your word, into this competitive strategic environment. Sean, did you uh, did you uh, did you have your hand up then? No, 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 I just agree with all of that. I was going to start talking about when you mentioned, you know, we've been doing this a long time and this is where we go off on tangents, is that, you know, one of the lessons identified is maybe we don't always learn the lessons. We got to make sure that we, even in the terrorist domain, we don't fight the, fight the last war. You know, we were very good in Northern Ireland ultimately, but, you know, not all terrorists are the same and they have very, very different methods of operation. And if you look right down the current battlefield, and this is this is you know very uh, OSINT orientated, the amount of UAVs that have been used, for example, again back to the ISIL thing, where they're using current or you know commercial off-the-shelf equipment, where they're pretty clever in terms of how they're adapting them, but fortunately they are crashing left, right, and centre. Now that makes two things: a we can then exploit them, and you can do that in the open, but Equally, what it does show is that the terrorist is getting more and more sophisticated, leveraging technology, and whether that's in the you know the cyber domain or with with sort of real physical stuff, we've got to keep up with that. And there is definitely a role to play there for open source intelligence, and looking, if nothing else, at what they have available to them online, so that they can develop their own capabilities. Yeah, maybe we'll come on to the innovation piece in a second, Don. But I saw you had your hand up, so go. Yeah, so, so, so Sean, you made this comment um, about looking forward to the next threat and sort of leveraging OSINT. And I'll just give you one more example where I think OSINT data can help to enrich that picture. Uh, and so we'll go back to the Global Terrorism Database. Um, and so, you know, if you're looking, at, you know, and, and we've learned that, um, say you're a country like China and you see maybe the utility of terrorism as, as either a strategic distraction or something that may be valuable, uh, even in, in an indirect way for their national security objectives. Think about the likelihood of state-to-state -state conflict, direct engagement between maybe a country like the United States and China over a particular area, whether that's likely or not, and that how both parties might be incentivized to sort of play in the gray zone space, so the asymmetric warfare space. And so you think about, at least I think about issues like proxies, and you say, all right, well, what's the proxy landscape potential for a country like China? To me, if I were asked to look at that question, what I would do is to go to the GTD, the Global Terrorism Database, as a starting point. And to sort of look and say, one of the things that the GTD codes for is going back to the 1970s or attacks ideological streams. So groups that would fit into the sort of communist inspired bucket. Look at that, map those. It's not a threat area that we typically think a lot about, but what does that look like? And sort of map that out because if you're going to think about future proxy potential or who might be the potential partners for a country like China, if they were interested in that, that would provide a sort of base level. It's not going to tell you everything. And obviously they might pursue paths that might be different from that, but I just think it would be interesting as sort of, uh, and it's an interesting case because it's just, to me, it demonstrates that that data is there as a starting point to build off of. Yeah, we certainly, Sean, have we not spoken about the foundational benefit of using an open source intelligence platform to get you started to prime the pump. We've talked about that plenty of times, Sean, you and I. Because time is going to get short on us, I'm going to move us on. I think we've probably spent another hour on that topic. So that's four, four or five hours <laughs> if I've got lined up for conversation. I hope the listeners okay. got an extra cup of tea. 
Let's move on to innovations. I think one of the things we you highlighted in the previous point there was how we can see what the terrorist is potentially doing. I think Sean, you said a second ago about the use of unmanned air vehicles and you know they're crashing those. Well, okay, but they're trying to use them. So what else could we learn from open sources that would help us start to track some of those innovations that the terror threat is trying to create? Don? Yeah, I think there's a lot that, that we can learn. And I, and I think that a key piece of this is looking at different types of data that, that can be leveraged and added to a composite picture that would help us help to enrich our understanding of how phenomenon and particularly functional threat streams like, uh, say, terrorist use of unmanned aerial systems or what people call today small drones, sort of how that threat stream is evolving. I recently wrote a piece for the publication Lawfare that, that looked at this issue about terrorism innovation and how we can anticipate leveraged publicly available data and other sources of data to anticipate the future directions of tech-enabled terrorism. And in that piece of it, there's five points um, and, and sort of five categories of data that, uh, in my view, would be useful to help us better understand the trajectory of those types of threats. So one category would be looking at failures. So failure laboratories of, say, groups like ISIS, and to say, all right, well, you know, we are clearly concerned about, you know, like the Islamic State's Tech Development Battalion, a key sort of innovation node that provides insight organizationally into where the Islamic State innovated and where it didn't. Obviously, we're concerned about the areas where they're innovating and operationalizing those ideas in a real way. Those are of immediate concern. But the broader sort of mix of areas where they played with an innovation but didn't necessarily pursue, it might be something that they come back to. So when we think about innovation, I think that's one important category to, to, to store uh, data on, to code it, and to understand sort of so we can map out threats. Another area I would point to is to look at the interplay between defensive and offensive forms of innovation. So uh, I've done a bunch of research looking at terrorist use of drones. And when I began looking into that topic in, in 2012, you know, our team at, at the Combating Terrorism Center started to, you know, we were looking at it through a defensive lens. So looking at how the Salafi jihadist community of supporters online were talking about how to defeat the West strategic weapon system. So our armed drones being used against them. And they were try talking online about how they could leverage, you know, different approaches or tools to minimize the effectiveness of that strategic tool. And sort of by extension, they started to talk about, well, hey, well, how can we use a tool like that? And so you see snippets of those conversations and these things, defensive and offensive innovation often interplay in, in relation to each other. The third bucket is asymmetric mirror imaging. And so, you know, we have used the West, the United States, allied partners, well, the, you know, the US in particular has used armed drones uh, as a key weapon and platform to degrade, you know, groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda, you know, in various locations around the globe. So the utilities there for us shouldn't have been a surprise to say if there's an opportunity for ISIS to develop their own sort of um, creatively modified, you know, fleet of armed drones themselves, that they might want to do that for a lot of different reasons. Symbolic, the operational utility. The sort of fourth bucket would be to look at hobbyist innovation, and and I think this is an area where. If you just look online, the, the sort of DIY hobbyist community is a creative bunch. They're, they're an enterprising bunch. And it's really great to see the things, how they innovate and use tools. And, you know, that community is, is trying to innovate and use tools because they're interested. And they want to sort of see what they can do with the tools. Not 
you know, engineered for harm. But then you sort of add in a group like Al Qaeda or the Islamic State in sort of thinking about it through that lens, saying, okay, there's a person in 2008 post a video on YouTube with a remote control helicopter firing a handgun successfully remotely. You know, as a terrorism researcher, I look at that and say, oh, that's really cool. But that also has an application for people who have, you know, malign intent to, 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 to do harm. Uh, so that's an area where I think we could do a better job of cataloging and sort of looking at that community and, and what's going on as a resource and even bringing them into the fold to help advise, to be quite honest. The last area that I was that I think is important to look at are just commercial product enhancements. And so when we look at think about it through the lens of, of drones or small UAS, it's entirely predictable that the technology is going to evolve. They're going to fly farther. They're going to fly faster and they're going to be have more capabilities than they have today. So, you know, one example that I looked at in the piece was DJI's first person view FPV drone. And, you know, as a terrorism researcher, I looked at this this new drone that was released by DJI right out of the box, flies 90 miles an hour, has different features that would be useful in some type of attack. I've also looked at drone racing and those platforms as a key area of concern. So to me, I think figuring out different ways to, to look at these different data piles and to how, how we can add structure to them and how we can sort of look at the arc, leverage them to look at the arc of a functional threat stream, I think would be a very useful thing to do. Some of which can be automated uh, or ideally, as time evolves, hopefully most of which could be automated to, to help us. Why is that useful? Well, if we just look at the Islamic State case, if we were to sort of have taken that approach and looked at those different data streams, you know, in 2014, 2015, it would not have been a surprise to us to say, hey, ISIS has, has developed a fleet of drones that they're going to use in an offensive way. And when we look in the rear view, we're like, oh, okay, of course it wasn't a surprise. But I think, you know, if we can get a little bit ahead of it and kind of leverage that data so we can think more about it, about countermeasures, mitigation in a proactive way before it becomes a real problem. And again, we're not always going to get it right. There are always going to be surprises, but I, I think it helps to minimize the surprise space, which I think is really useful. Yeah. Uh, again, another six or seven hours worth of work to be done there. So, uh, Sean, we'll let you summarize that for a couple of minutes. By the way, Dom, I'm going to book you for at least a month worth of podcasts, just letting you know that in advance. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, go ahead. Yeah, we haven't got much time, actually. I was just going to add to that. You know, that was, that's more the concrete side, but there's the softer side as well. We haven't even, and we haven't got really time to discuss this, looked about the you know, the information campaign, which is now so important for the terrorists and, and how they do manipulate media, whether that is for <coughs> messaging, whether that's for implicitly or explicitly directing operations, or whether it's even recruitment. I think one general point I'd make here that we always make and and, uh, and I'm always going to make it is that, you know, OSINT can provide a very important addition to and supplement in support of the exquisite uh, collection capabilities. I don't think anybody is saying and never will say that OSINT will be able to answer everything, but in particularly in this case, it can provide that really important nuance and the understanding back to that, the piece that we were talking about, the context that we might not otherwise have. And I think, you know, summarizing from my perspective anyway, that is going to get even more important as all of the government resources get sucked into the more, you know, state on state, big strategic issues that we have to deal with right now. We're going to have to rely more and more on, on, on open source information intelligence. So it's just going to become more important. Yeah, and that's why we need to get better at it. 
and, and gain efficiencies and automate where we can. Particularly where we're starting to see the, the confluence now of what we've previously described as a separate thing, counterterrorism, to heavy metal warfighting and all the bits in between. These are starting to blur into one another from what you've said today. And Dom, just to give you fair warning, I'm going to just try and summarize my thoughts as Sean has just done. But before I do so, at the end, I'm going to ask you a question. If you had to step away from this conversation and leave the listener with one thing you wanted them to remember about how useful to you in counterterrorism open source intelligence has been, what would it be? Now, what you've done for us in the last 35, 40 minutes has given us a wealth of things to think about. And as I've indicated as going through, there's hours of conversation just beckoning. Bits I'm going to take away from the last uh, piece, though, that you just gave us, particularly around the incident data, is that foundational intelligence quality that the open source environment can create that helps you see past what you call the near-term threat, which is quite rightly what we're all worried about, and also the ability to evaluate the performance of previous counterterrorism, how that might be shaping what you do going forward. I also liked, and I've just mentioned this idea that there is a strategic distraction potential for an adversary against a near peer or peer adversary that might well sit very nicely nest within, to use your word, the strategic competition that we know we're all facing in the modern world. But the bit that I'm going to just to pause on just for a second in my summary is that composite picture that you managed to bring together there about what you can learn and become proactive about, potentially proactive around, by the composite picture that OSINT can provide. And you used the five windows of failures, of defensive and offensive development, asymmetric mirror imaging, and no surprise, as you quite rightly said, the hobbyist, I love the fact you could go back in 20 or 30 years worth of videos online and find all those innovations that somebody came up with for a quote, bit of fun, bit of exploration that could actually become quite important. And then as you say, the, the product enhancements, I am a drone owner, and I do know the first drone I had lasted for about four or five minutes. The one I'm currently flying is 45, 50 minutes and will fly a long way from it if I let it. So I know exactly what you mean by that. But all of that allowing us to take a more proactive stance by that composite picture, that's the bit I really wanted to underscore. The power of open source intelligence is that ability to draw a composite foundational picture. So massive amounts of uh, help and insight on that, Don, as you can see from the time we've taken, we really wanted to get into that more. So the question then, Don, to finish us with, if you had the listener demanded the listener walked away with just one thing that open source has done for you in the counterterrorism environment, what would that be? Context, context, context. To me, it just goes back to context. It's just demonstrates can be leveraged about to understand how environments uh, are evolving, how groups are evolving from a counterterrorism perspective. It's not going to necessarily tee up your next operation. In, in some cases it can, you know, and, and in some cases it has. But I think the real strategic utility is the broader context and allowing us to understand how issues, groups, problems in the terrorism space are evolving, uh, how we are evolving as, as in a, in a counterterrorism way as well, how we are being effective, where we're being successful, where we're not being effective, and leveraging those data points to understand how we move forward and hopefully how we learn from those data points and leverage that context uh, either to further degrade enemies or to get better ourselves. Fantastic. Don, it's been an absolute pleasure listening to you talk today. Thank you so much for your contribution, which has been immense. I have warned you three times through this conversation that I am going to come back to ask you to do it at least five or six more times. So uh, fair warning. For me, knowing that you're at the place that you're at at West Point, ensuring that the 
up and coming graduates from that fantastic school have the kind of understanding you're bringing to it is great comfort. But equally, the fact that we're getting a very, very clear understanding of the power of open source, the potential, the, the exploitable potential of open source, which you've given us today, which we will certainly explore again in the future. So, Dom, thank you so much for your time today. It has been superb. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, Dom. Thanks, Sean. Welcome. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.